After much delay, after much hesitation, after many, many lines of poetry, we have finally come to the moment in which we can peer down into the seventh of the evil pouches, the seventh of the Malabolgia that make up the grand landscape of fraud. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast, Walking with Dante. We have walked with the Pilgrim Dante all the way down hell, all the way through seven circles, past three circles of the violent. We're now in the giant landscape of fraud, and we are entering the seventh of the subsets of fraud. The pilgrim wants to know what's down in this pit from this voice that is unintelligible, and we are about to find out. So here we are. Canto 24 of Inferno, lines 79 through 96. If you want to see this translation, it lives on my website, markscarbro.com, or here it is. We descended the head of the bridge where it joins up with the eighth embankment. Now the pouch was made clear to me. I saw a horrifying pileup of snakes in it and of so many wild types that the memory of it still curdles my blood. Libya, with all its sands, has nothing to brag about even if it's full up of Kaledri, Chakuli, and Farire, with Chenkras and Amphispene. It hasn't ever had, not even with all that's in Ethiopia, and even in the lands up beyond the Red Sea, as much pestilence as this, nor as repellent either. In the middle of this cruel and nasty abundance, people were running around naked and crazed with fear, without a crevice to hide in or even a heliotrope. Their hands were lashed behind their backs with snakes who had stuck their heads and tails through their crotches and joined themselves in knots in front of their stomachs. That seems like well enough to do in one passage. A writhing mass of horrific snakes, so many different kinds. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about delays in the plot. And then we want to talk about this description of the seventh of the Malabolgia and the incredible, thick, swarming Warren, not of snakes, but of texts. It begins, we descended the head of the bridge. If you remember, the pilgrim had, had heard a voice that seemed unintelligible or incapable of making sense. So the pilgrim said, can we get down a little on the wall? Can we descend a bit so that I can see down in there? Virgil had said, yep, no problem. <laughs> a wish like that needs to be done without talking, even though Virgil talked. And now we're there. We descended the head of the bridge where it joins up with the eighth embankment, so the Eighth of the Malabolgia is just ahead of us, but now they're on that ridge that runs between them. Remember the spider web or bicycle spoke structure of this thing? Now the pouch was made clear to me. And 
here it is. I saw a horrifying pile up, a swarm. The idea here is a traffic jam, if we want to put it in modern words, a horrifying traffic jam of snakes and of so many wild types that the memory of it still curdles my blood. This is an interesting bit because... We have delayed and delayed and delayed this site. We have been told that it's dark. We've been told the Pilgrim couldn't see anything. The Pilgrim told Virgil he couldn't see anything. Can we get down so I can see something? The Pilgrim's been out of breath. He's been sitting on the ground. He's had to get up. I mean, this has been delayed and delayed and delayed until this moment. And let's just say that that is an interesting new technique in the poem. We haven't seen a lot of grand delays. We had some delays at the walls of Dis, but those delays were full of action, of demons and possibly Medusa. It, they were, it was full of all kinds of things happening in the heavenly messenger. We've seen some delays like that. We had the big delay of Canto 11 when Virgil sat down. They had to get used to the stink of hell and Virgil sat down and the pilgrim sat down with him and Virgil mapped out all of lower hell, the three rungs ahead of them down into lower hell where we now are. That was a delay, but again, that had to do with a lesson. This is much more of a descriptive delay in which the plot is clearly in action. The plot is moving, and yet they're not moving, but it's just been a constant delay. It's been, to use a very, very modern word for this, it's had a tantric structure. It is a constant edging and delay and delay until we get to the reveal. And you have to be pretty secure as a writer to pull off tantric structure. You have to be holding and holding and holding until you finally let it go. And there you are. And now we are. And oh my gosh, this is how gross it is. It's an entire pit full of snakes. And not only are they full of snakes, they're wrapped around people and people are running crazy and naked with snakes between their crotches. I mean, this is the, this is about as gross as it could possibly get. And at the end of all of this delay, this delay, this delay that we've had for so long, ever since they started climbing out of that sixth pit, and then Dante the Pilgrim out of breath, and then Virgil tongue-lashing him, and then not saying anything, and then telling Virgil he didn't see anything, and then saying that after all that delay, it all ends with the sight of the poet. The memory of it still curdles my blood. That's not the Pilgrim. That's the guy writing the poem. And isn't it interesting that that whole huge system of tantric delay that has happened in the structure of the narrative itself ends not with the pilgrim gasping, not with the pilgrim saying, oh, wow, look at that. No, I saw a horrifying pileup of snakes in it and so many wild types that the memory of it still curdles my blood and it ends with the poet. I should say that that, that verb there, skipa, mi skipa, the curdles my blood, my, my, the blood curdles in me. It's a difficult verb actually to translate. Most of the early commentators uh, do what I just did, which is curdles or spoils or ruins in some way my blood. Um, many of modern translators now see chills or ices or cools down my blood. I think the notion is more 
curdling. It has more, it's a difficult word actually to pin down, but I think it has a little bit more to do with coagulating, although Dante doesn't really know what that means. But they do know that blood stops flowing. And that's the kind of idea here that, remember, the blood is seen to exist in the heart as a lake, the lake of the heart, to use the words of the first canto. The, the heart is a repository of blood and it pumps it out to the extremities and it gets in thinner and thinner and thinner little bits, we would say now capillaries, but it gets in thinner and thinner little bits and then it kind of just evaporates out of the skin or it just kind of dissipates out into the tissue. They don't understand about circulation back to the heart at all. The idea here is that the blood just quits moving for the writer, not the pilgrim. So it's so horrific that the writer is in danger of a heart attack. And no wonder, because what the writer pulls off next would give any writer a heart attack. The next bits of this passage, the next 12 lines, are, there's no other way to say it, a tangle of poetic and theological allusions. It is a complicated, unbelievably wild passage. And I'm going to have to be a little bit, well, I don't know what I want to say, esoteric here in order to pull this off. And furthermore, in order to pull this off, I'm going to have to tell you what's ahead of us. This is the pit of the thieves. We have come to the fraudulent thieves. And you you might say thieves. Wait a minute. We are way down in hell. You mean thieves are way farther down in hell than heretics, than murderers, than suicides, than <laughs> homosexuals? I don't know. That one hits near and dear to the heart. Thieves are way farther down than any of that. This may be a kind of theft, and we'll talk about this in the episodes ahead. This may be more than just mere theft, a kind of theft that is a socially destructive theft, not necessarily just breaking and entering houses, although you can make a case for that. Um, it's, it's one of those stumbling blocks in comedy. How can theft be so low down in hell? We'll talk so much more about this in the episodes ahead. There's a kind of literary thievery that's going on here. Let's just come through the passage and I'll explain it to you. It starts Libya. And when the passage says Libya, they don't mean the country that you and I know now. What Dante the poet means by that is uh, basically northern Africa, west of Egypt. So the kind of expanse of northern Africa across what we would see as the country of Libya, but not just that country, maybe even as far as Tunisia, that long expanse of northern Africa is Libya to the poet. And it's Libya to him because it's Libya to Lucan in the Pharsalia, but we'll talk about that in a minute. But again, let's just say we're not talking about just the country. We're talking about a kind of expanse of northern Africa. Libya with all its sands has nothing to brag about. Why is this important? Libya with all its sand has nothing to brag about. This is already starting to pick up from Lucan's Pharsalia. It's already starting to pick up from Ovid's Metamorphosis. Cato leads his troops in the Pharsalia across the Libyan sands, and they are plagued by serpents, by hundreds of snakes. Why are those snakes there? Oh, then we have to go back to Ovid. In the Metamorphoses, in Book 4, at line 617 further, we have to find out that Perseus cut 
off Medusa's head. And when he cut off Medusa's head, he flew over the sands of Libya and the blood dripping out of Medusa's head hit the ground and turned into snakes. And so this region is full of snakes. And Dante goes on. Libya with all its sand has nothing to brag about, even if it's full up of, and then comes these weird words that I read to you, Caledri, Jaculi, Farie, uh, Chenkras, Amphispine. I left these essentially exactly as they appear in the Florentine because these are five names of snakes from the 15 species of snakes that are listed in 20 lines of the Pharsalia in Book nine around line seven eleven. These are the there are fifteen varieties of snakes there. These are five of them. And let us just say at the very start, Dante has no zoological notion of any of these snakes. There's all kinds of ways that we can interpret these as plow drivers and um, uh, snakes that allegedly make smoke as they go along. And there's all kinds of ways that these things get interpreted by the commentators. But I left it alone and I left it in the Florentine because Dante is just picking it up from the Pharsalia, from Lucan's Latin and jamming it down into his Florentine. So here is a little bit of Lucan with a little bit of Ovid behind it as an explanation, and it's going to get worse. It hasn't ever had that land, hasn't ever had, not even with all that's in Ethiopia, and now we're talking east of Egypt, well, kind of southeast of Egypt, but now we're talking the part of Africa that is southeast or maybe east of Egypt, or even in the lands out beyond the Red Sea, now we're talking really east of Egypt and maybe even Arabia, as much pestilence as this, nor is repellent either. In the middle of this cruel and nasty abundance, people were running around naked and crazed with fear. You know who else was naked and there was a snake around? Ah, uh, Adam and Eve. Remember Adam and Eve eat of the tree? Uh, the knowledge of good and evil, which they're told not to eat of. They eat of that tree and they suddenly realize they're naked. And when God comes walking through the Garden of Eden, I love this bit that God walks around in the Garden of Eden. God comes walking through the Garden of Eden in the, isn't it the cool of the afternoon? I think that's the detail in Genesis. Because walking in the Garden in the cool of the afternoon, I love God is like this guy that has a garden and he likes to walk around in it in the cool of the afternoon. Uh, and when he walks around, he calls for them. Where are you? And they're ashamed and hiding, which these people in this pit don't even have. So we have now had a reference, maybe two references to Lucan's Pharsalia, both Libya and its sands, and then these lists of snakes. Behind that, we've had Ovid and why Libya has so many snakes running around in it. We've had a little bit of a geography lesson, which Dante has picked up from various geographers of his own day. Then we come down to this and we may have a reference to a kind of Garden of Eden scenario out of Genesis. And you should note that many medievals thought that theft was the original sin. 
not just eating the fruit, but taking what's not yours. Is the original sin, that darn apple, stealing that apple was the original sin itself. Remember, you don't have to remember, but remember in St. Augustine's Confessions. I love that I said remember in St. Augustine's Confessions. Well, okay, in St. Augustine's Confessions in part two, remember it's the stealing of the pear that makes Augustine fall out of his childhood innocence. He steals the pear and all this this whole thing about having stolen the pear from the tree and the childish innocence is broken in Augustine, which he's riffing off Genesis there, the stealing of the fruit. Augustine doesn't lie behind this passage, but I just want to tell you that there's a long tradition of the fall being equated with theft. These people naked, like Adam and Eve running around, crazed with fear, without a crevice to hide in. No, right here, Robert Durling points out that this is a reference to a passage from Aquinas' Summa Theologica, in which Aquinas claims that concealment is necessary for theft, that part of the necessary causality of theft, what makes it possible, to use more modern language, what makes theft possible is concealment or even a heliotrope. And the poet doesn't mean the flowers that grow in my New England garden. Rather, he means a stone that is said to make you invisible. It's part of medieval folklore that there is this heliotrope stone that you can find. And once you hold the heliotrope in your hand, you are made in, you are rendered invisible. Later, after Dante, Boccaccio plays with this in one of his stories in um, what book? eight, isn't it? Somewhere in there, Boccaccio plays with this of the heliotrope as the thing that you can hold and it makes you invisible. Of course, this is what thieves want is heliotropes because it would make you invisible so that you could carry off your theft without being noticed. Their hands were lashed behind their backs with snakes who had stuck their heads and tails through their crotches. So these people are wound around with snakes and the snakes have pulled their heads and tails through these people's crotches. It's so gross. Pull these, their heads and tails through these people's crotches and join themselves in knots in front of their stomach. And you can hear it before I even tell you it. There's something weirdly sexual going on here. And that's because Aristotle in On the Generation of Animals claimed that snakes reproduce by wrapping around each other. That's the basic method of reproduction for snakes. So in those 12 lines I just read you, there was Lucan's Pharsalia, Ovid's Metamorphosis, the Book of Genesis, various medieval geographies, there was St. Thomas Aquinas, and there was Aristotle. All in those 12 lines. I know and we quoted Augustine, but I can't actually position him here. I can just tell you that theft is a long-standing idea of the kind of first fall. My gosh, what a theft is going on in this passage. Lucan, Ovid, the Bible, Aquinas, Aristotle, medieval geographers. It's so thieving, and yet it seems so simple. It seems like, oh, well, I get what's going on here, right? There's just a bunch of snakes crawling around, and there's some weird names for those snakes, but, you know, a bunch of snakes, and they've wrapped people up. Now, there's far more going on here than even meets the eye. You know, you have to be a pretty daring poet to try to pull this off. To try to, in 12 lines, link up Lucan, Ovid, the Bible, 
Aquinas and Aristotle and make me still not realize it because the narrative engine is driving forward around me. You are a consummate writer when you can pull that off. It's difficult enough to weave one illusion into a text. To get five running in 12 lines where you don't actually need to know any of it to understand what the lines are about, you're talking some high-level poetics, and you're talking some high-level thievery, you know, stealing from one writer to make your plot work. Let's read this passage one more time. We descended the head of the bridge where it joins up with the eighth embankment. Now the pouch was made clear to me. I saw a horrifying pileup of snakes in it and of so many wild types that the memory of it still curdles my blood. Libya, with all its sand, has nothing to brag about. Even if it's full up of Caledri, Jaculi, and Ferrie, with Chencras and Amphisbene, it hasn't ever had, not even with all that's in Ethiopia and even in the lands out beyond the Red Sea, as much pestilence as this, nor as repellent either. In the middle of this cruel and nasty abundance, people were running around naked and crazed with fear without a crevice to hide in or even a heliotrope. Their hands were lashed behind their backs with snakes who had stuck their heads and tails through their crotches and joined themselves in knots in front of their stomachs. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. I hope you weren't too grossed out by the snakes, because if you got snakeophobia, which a lot of people have, you can have a real hard time with this pit, and we're going to be here for a very long time in this evil pouch with all these snakes, and they are going to be nastier than even here. Uh, it's going to get wilder and weirder and more sexualized and stranger, and oh, this is one doozy of a malabolgia ahead of us with the thieves so subscribe rate this podcast if you enjoy it i would really appreciate a good rating and a nice comment that would mean all the world to me and otherwise come back next time because we got more snakes to play with we got more people to be <laughs> done in by snakes all that on the podcast walking with dante i'm mark scarborough i'll see you soon <laughs>